Welcome to the TTB podcast for August 2016, volume 54, number 8. My name's David Fazekli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave. I'm DTB editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month highlights a subtle change in the approach to national clinical guidelines. So perhaps we'll start by asking what... What is this change? Well, they've they just added a clause which points out that the direction for guidelines is that they shouldn't be tram lines, as David Haslam has said as the chair of NICE, that actually we should use our clinical acumen, particularly in situations where patients don't fit the guidelines, perhaps because of comorbidities or other medication they're taking. So greater focus on clinical judgment and patient preference? Yes, the other the other issue, and this is actually of course something which NICE has been pushing for some years now, is that patients should be increasingly involved in actually making decisions about their care. Almost all the new guidelines, well all the new NICE guidelines certainly do this. They actually include uh, patient decision aids and um, attempts to ensure that patients are involved in those decisions. So in the editorial we highlight sort of change that's happened from early guide- guidelines where you see big benefits from introducing quite drastic interventions and now with kind of preventive care and lots of more recent guidelines perhaps the benefits are less obvious well i think this is it isn't it i think you know if you can demonstrate to a patient that uh, they are ill or they know they're ill and you know that the guideline has given you the best choices for the treatment to make that patient better that's pretty clear cut the problem we have now with Uh, so much guidance is that it's around risk assessment and risk treatment. And when you're treating a risk or attempting to ameliorate a risk, of course, the patient's um, own values and judgment must play a considerable part in that. Because for them, a risk that someone else might consider to be high, they may say, well, actually, you know, a 10% risk of me developing um, a heart attack in the next 10 years, I thought I was at much higher risk. That doesn't sound very bad to me, actually. You know, I'm not worried about that. Where someone else might be more fearful or might have, you know, more experiences in life that makes them have a different approach to it. So clearly, as this slight change, or maybe it is a sea change, I don't know, happens, uh, there are some implications for clinicians. What are clinicians going to need as a result of this? Well, I... This is where I think it could be quite difficult because I'm not sure we have enough evidence out there to be able to provide everyone with guidance. In the sense that if you have someone who's got just atrial fibrillation, otherwise fit and well, then obviously an atrial fibrillation guidance will probably cover them. But a diabetic with atrial fibrillation who's got muscular dystrophy, Parkinson's disease, you know, diabetes, once you start adding on other conditions, I think it becomes more and more difficult. And I think one of the thrusts that we're suggesting in, in our editorial is that actually we need to be able to highlight not just the evidence, but the lack of evidence and actually make clear to people where the guidance is sitting on hard rock of good sound clinical evidence and where it's skating over much thinner ice and perhaps you know one must allow some leeway in, in whether you accept that as a decision or not. I think one of the issues always with guidelines is that they are... By definition, you can't have half a guideline. So when you're creating them, the risk is that the guideline developers create a feeling of continuity where none exists in the gu- in, in the evidence. And this is one of the things that I think you know needs to be highlighted. But I think it's a difficult thing. We're not saying it's something that can be uh, done in a day. But I think one of the central pushes for us is that if you can't clearly demonstrate 
benefit to a patient. And if your guidance has got to the point where it's almost impossible to explain, then it probably means that guidance isn't really guidance at all. So the major challenge for developers and commissioners of guidelines is what? Well, I think it's A, to be able to express the evidence that is available in a way that patients can understand. That's really important, so they can be taking part in the decisions. Two, it's to actually look harder or look at different ways you can get evidence about different patient groups so it's clear whether the guidance covers your patient group or not, your patient in front of you. And three, I think it's um, whether there are systems in place where you can actually begin to look at comorbidity in a different way and actually provide guidance that, that somehow allows you to add comorbidity in and still keeps those guidance uh, credible and uh, coherent. But a major challenge in how do you present all this conflicting information in a way that is understandable to both healthcare professionals and to patients? Absolutely, and I think we've seen that with the diabetes guidelines, isn't it? It's very interesting. NICE produced a, a diabetes, not an insulin-dependent diabetes guidelines, which looked like the tube math of London. It was the most complex thing ever. And, of course, what happened is it was completely unworkable in pragmatic day-to-day work as a clinician. Newer guidance has come out much more simplified now. Recognise that actually a lot of the so-called benefits from drug A versus drug B were very marginal and actually in a pragmatic clinical setting actually probably clinically just not not in any way um, significant. But also so you can start to now really make sure that patients understand that you know, this is your level of control. If I, if we get a little bit lower by adding in this drug, this is the benefit that you will see. And I think both clinician and patient might be surprised at how little benefit sometimes some of these uh, changes in drugs actually provide. So much greater emphasis on being able to explain in simple terms to a Absolutely. patient. Absolutely, and the use of, of, you know, I suspect increasingly we'll see tools that allow us to demonstrate uh, to patients what benefit they can expect from an intervention or not. Okay, thank you very much. Our first main article this month reviews the use of capsaicin for the management of diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Let's start with a a bit of background. When you see patients with uh, diabetic peripheral neuropathy, what what do they complain of? So this is classically an unusual type of pain. Often patients describe it as a burning sensation or an irritation. It classically occurs just at night and perhaps as many as a fifth of diabetics can develop diabetic neuropathy. Um, And it's a difficult condition uh, both for patients and for their clinicians to deal with. At the moment, standard treatment options would include what? So NICE suggests first line tricyclic antidepressants such as amitriptyline SNRIs, duloxetine is the the drug that's licensed, and gabapentin or pregabalin, so the anti-epileptics. So those are the three first-line treatment options that NICE suggest. And do we have a sense of how good the existing treatments are? We have a couple of systematic reviews that have compared capsaicin, which we're going to talk about in a minute, with these. And we're talking about numbers needed to treat of the conventional treatments of around... 11, between sort of 7 and 11. So it, it's sort of at that situation, that sounds quite good, doesn't it? And you think, well, actually, I've got to treat 7 to 10 people with diabetic neuropathy for one of them to have a clinically uh, significant benefit. And by clinically significant benefit, remember, we're not talking about them being pain-free. We're just saying uh, 30% or more reduction in their pain levels. 
So the pain doesn't go away, it just diminishes and you're going to treat up to 10. Exactly, 10 people. And remember exactly what you're saying. And I think, you know, a lot of patients imagine if we give them a treatment, it's going to cure their pain. And yet, unfortunately, with these conditions and actually many conditions with pain, I think we have to re sort of alter the, the, the level of expectation with painkillers in that most painkillers don't alleviate pain completely. They simply have um, a beneficial effect. So something about managing expectations. In terms of the drugs that we're reviewing, what is capsaicin? So capsaicin is an extract from hot chili uh, plants and uh, it's, it's particularly a, a particularly strong chili effect. And the way... Um, uh, capsaicin works is on the TRPV1 receptors. These activate the heat-activated calcium channels. So basically what happens is that your nerves are kidded into thinking that uh, there is heat there and you get a sensation of burning. And what we think happens with capsaicin is it initially has that stimulation effect on these receptors, so you get a sensation of heat, but then actually you get neurotransmitted depletion and that seems to reduce the ability of the nerves to transmit pain and you get an analgesic effect. Okay, and there are two products that we look at. We're looking at a cream which is 0.075%, which is licensed for the management of neuropathies and, and diabetic neuropathy, and also a patch which has got 8% um, capsaicin content. And the cream, the 0.075% cream, is something you put on three or four times a day and may use for several weeks. Whereas the patch? Yes, the patch, first of all, this is only a specialist option. Uh, it has to be handled with great care. They suggest you wear eye guards and um, gloves when, when in contact with this, this patch. And you just apply it for 30 minutes if it's being applied to the feet or 60 minutes elsewhere. And then it's removed. So that's the treatment. And it could be really quite intense sensation when it's put on. So they often suggest that you use ice packs or opioid analgesia or something for that period when that patch is applied for that short period. But then what seems to happen is so we get that depletion in neurotransmitter levels. And as a consequence, you get an analgesic effect, which can last eight weeks or even more. OK, so the efficacy, let's talk about the cream, much evidence? No, I mean, unfortunately, the cream, Cochrane did a review in 2012, which suggested that there was no evidence of benefit. NICE has reviewed it. NICE has sort of basically said there might be some benefit, but it's very marginal. Okay, so not a lot apparent benefit with, with the cream. And the patch? We have a Cochrane review published, which had an NNT, numbers needed to treat, of about between six and nine over eight to 12 weeks to get a clinically significant benefit. And I say more recently, there's been a uh, systematic review uh, and meta-analysis which compared it with the other treatments and found in that meta-analysis, the NNT figure was about 11, and that compared with about 6 to 8 for duloxetine, gabapentin, and uh, pregabalin. So since then, the manufacturer has applied for extension to its licence to cover the diabetic population. That's it, yes. Yeah, so, and, and we just have two studies that really support this application. One is a phase three efficacy study, which has not been published in a peer-reviewed uh, journal of any sorts, and so we only have partial information about that. And we also have another uh, long-term safety study just checking on the, on the safety of it in, the, in use in diabetics. So all the, all the study data is, is summarised and has to be taken from the, well, the 
EPAR, the European Public Assessment Report, that was considered and published by the European Medicines Agency. That, so that's where we've had to draw our information from. So what did the efficacy study show? So efficacy study, they um, compared pain before a patch was applied with the mean score for pain between two and eight weeks later. That was the uh, primary outcome. And what they found was that, once again, they used the clinically meaningful level of pain, 30% reduction, and 41% of patients who had had the patch had a clinically meaningful reduction in pain compared with 32% of those who'd had the placebo. So quite a hefty placebo response. As always with pain, very often you do see this. So yes, they're going to 30% placebo effects, but um, a, a statistically significant improvement in pain in the patch group. Okay. And then the second study, which wasn't an efficacy study, but a safety assessment. Yes, yeah, so they, they looked at some secondary outcomes as well, and they looked at pain and efficacy as a secondary outcome. Um, but this was, I say, this was a safety study primarily, and it looked at uh, some of the adverse outcomes from using, taking patch in diabetics. Harms? So, as you might imagine, uh, skin irritation is the big one here, and about 60% of patients using the patch had adverse events, burning, redness, itching, um, those sorts of problems. But actually, they said that in the studies, they did only 2% discontinued because of that. One of the issues with the diabetic group is that there were more adverse effects associated with neurological type um, functions such as burning sensation and effect on feeling. Um, that was level about 12% in the diabetic group with a third less, so only 4%, two-thirds less, 4% in the normal population. And there's been this one case of persistent hypoesthesia. So this was a case where someone had the patch applied and actually had long-term anaesthetic effect on, on that area. Now you can imagine with diabetics and the concern about peripheral neuropathy and loss of sensation, that might be a big issue. Yeah, so the one group of people who you might worry about permanent nerve damage are diabetics. Precisely, and I think this is why they, they did the long-term um, safety study to, to assess that. So bottom line, evidence of benefit. It does, as we oh, say in most of these reviews, it does do something. But this isn't for primary care. No, as, you, as we said earlier, there's big issues around handling the patch. It is quite expensive. It's £210 per patch. But neither Wales nor Scotland have endorsed its use and Prescrea our French cousins, uh, their drug and therapeutic bulletin reviewed the patch in 2010 and determined then that it had no clinical value. Okay, thank you very much. And our final article this month uh, looks at medicines and some of the excipients in them and effect on dietary intolerances. We looked at an issue in our April issue, we looked at uh, the implications of religious and cultural beliefs on what might be in medicines and what might be acceptable. This time we look at the impact on dietary intolerances. So what do we cover? So this is, we, we cover um, the all the areas of the, the main concerns. We look at gluten, we look at um, wheat allergy separately from celiac disease, we look at uh, lactose intolerance, peanut allergy and egg allergy, um, shellfish concerns, E-numbers. 
we try and look at all those excipients which you can find in medicines regularly, which patients may be concerned about and which way may worry it's going to affect them in some way because of their own dietary intolerances or allergies. So how much of a problem do we think these excipients are in medicines? Well, I think the surprising thing was despite a lot of people being concerned about dietary intolerances, so uh, up to 20% of the population are concerned they've got a dietary intolerance. That's probably um, over uh, an overestimation of the total number. But what we discovered was that really... Um, with only one or two exceptions, there is absolutely no problem um, with the majority of drugs that we take. So even if they contain wheat starch, um, there's such a small amount of gluten that these drugs are not considered to be of any concern to patients with celiac disease. The only issue would be if you have a true wheat allergy. Um, so that, the lactose that's used, um, you know, the general overarching theme is really that apart from one or two exceptions which we detail in the article um, one shouldn't be too concerned about anyone who has food intolerances and their, and their drugs they take. And obviously at the end of the article we do summarise some sources of information or places to look for further information. Yeah I, it's a really useful article I think because we've uh, included um, the areas to look because I think one of the things that certainly primary care um, GPs and nurses find sometimes quite difficult is that very often the excipients aren't seemingly obvious to or to find actually when one looks in the BNF and sometimes um, there are other places you can look which got more details for you. Okay, thank you very much. To read these or any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com and if you have any comments or observations, please email us at dtbeditor at bmj.com.